The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm now joined by JJ Bull the Bullet. Hello, JJ. Hello, Joe. Also joined by Jonathan McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello, Joe. Jo- yeah, well, wow. <laughs> That's a twofer. Uh, John's back from his holiday. A delight for us. Uh, Steve Hankles is here in the studio as well. Hi, Steve. Hello, Joe. And of course, ah, guten tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie geht's du? Guten tag, Herr Devine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm so well because I watched all the football this weekend and we're now here to talk about it. Yes, there's what's coming up on today's show. We've got Arsenal, top of the league, after a, uh, a statement victory over Liverpool. Uh, Manchester United beating a, a tough Everton team. Uh, we're going to talk about a few things that happened on the continent too, uh, including uh, Milan beating uh, mid-table Juventus. Um, Borussia Dortmund Bayern Munich, a, a, a complicated clash. I don't know if it was complicated, but I just I didn't watch it. Uh, and of course, other things will be there too. If you like the football, you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where I believe you'll get 30 days for free to try it for free. That's wrong. Uh, but there's something along that. And you'll read all the wonderful pieces. What's your favourite thing you've read while you were on holiday, John? Because I assume you were checking in with work. I've not read anything about football. Have you not? Week, you yeah. actually switched off, did you? I switched off, yeah. I, I've forgotten how to talk about football, so this should be interesting. Great. Okay. Seb, what did you read on The Athletic that you enjoyed? Uh, Adam Leventhal's report, which uh, I don't want to describe because I think you should all just go and read it. Very, very good piece. And free. It's uh, yeah. it's. The paywall has been suspended, so please go and read that. It's an um, excellent piece of journalism from Adam about the stadium tragedy. So Seb, Seb is referring to um, the, the events from the Kanjurahan Stadium that we, we, we sort of started the show with last week. Um, Adam was, was out there for a few days and has, um, has written a full report of it. As Seb said, it's, um, it's free. It's not behind the paywall. So anybody listening can go and read that if you want. What we'll do is we'll pop a link to it in the description if you're listening or if you're watching on, on YouTube. Um, but it is, it's worth going to, going to read that. Thank you, Seb. Okay. Well, listen, without further ado, let us begin today's show. Statement of victory, as we said. Arsenal 3 to Liverpool. What enabled Arsenal to win this game, JJ? They took advantage of lots of errors that Liverpool made. Liverpool don't look anywhere near as good as they were. But Arsenal are just playing a really, really intense attacking style of football. And they start off in the first minute. They go right at them from the very beginning. Liverpool can't handle it. They take advantage of the space that's left from this changing system that Liverpool have played. Um and then that's the good start so they start they start games really fast there's an article I think Art de Roche wrote where's your table going <laughs> just moving my table oh my god we're haunted mm. and so um, it's on about how they start games fast and that really helps but then I think over time Liverpool we did a video on this on TIFO IRL if you want to watch actual analysis of the mm. tactics board and stuff but then Liverpool gained control of the midfield there's loads of reasons for it but um, essentially Arsenal couldn't get close enough to Thiago and Henderson who were able to then Thiago especially run the game and they got control of it and at one point Liverpool had 62% possession in that half but Arsenal held on they were well equalised obviously Liverpool got an equaliser it's to do with movement in the, the back line and uh, balls going through the middle of the defence and Gabriel and and uh, Saliba were getting split a little bit caught mm. flat and the balls going through the middle of them but by the end of it again so they start strong and they finish strong and that's how they managed to get that goal and the counter attack again like getting in behind them 
And then in the second half, they keep up the momentum. Like they, I think they had a big team talk or something like that. It mm-hmm. really, really went for the players and they got them all revved up, came out. Um, they Liverpool. do that after every goal as well, don't they? It's quite interesting. To do what, they, all, they all sort of gather. It looks like Granite Xhaka is, is telling everyone after they've scored. They have they celebrate and then they have a huddle and Xhaka says, everyone stay calm and then they go back to the work. Well, part of the thing that, that seems to have worked with Arsenal now is that they've got really good team spirit. Mm. They've, they've got a good group of players who are roughly about the same age. They're a very young team as well. So they've got loads of energy. Uh, they all seem to share, I don't know, they seem to get on with each other, which really helps. But they've got momentum and they're winning. Everything they're doing is helping them win. So that just builds and builds and builds and builds. And um, there's not much you can do about build, beating a team who's really full of confidence. Mm. And so they're just driving each other on. There's that real community going on with that team. And you can see, the, like we just talked about a bit last week, like how the crowd seems to be really loud in the Emirates at the moment. And then you've got Arteta driving everyone up and... Like he's an avatar for he wants to be he wants to be in the pitch. You can see him; he's dancing about all the way through, really yeah. animated. And I think people connect with that, and that just helps them play. It just feels like it's a real good place to go at the moment. John Tommy Asu started at, at left back in this game. Kieran Tierney w- was available and did indeed come on a little bit later, um, but that's just, wasn't quite sure why that was happening initially. Can you shed any light on that? Please? Yeah, one of the things I talk about a lot when I talk about Arteta is his flexibility, the flexibility of the team that he's set up now. And uh, I think one of the most interesting things for me about the game was that we've seen Arsenal play a number of different build-up shapes. But when it came to playing against Liverpool, they they really pushed their fullbacks wide. We've talked a lot about the fullbacks being inverted whenever Arsenal are playing, but we didn't really see any of that. And so I think the general idea was to, to keep those fullbacks as close to the touchlines as possible, spread Arsenal's front line. And as a result of that, it just meant that Liverpool's press would be less effective. Yeah. Uh, and I think it caused caused them a lot of problems. So I think bringing in Tommy Asu is probably in part to do with to do with that, the, the ability to just sort of have um, these two fullbacks a little bit wider. I think it allowed them to sit a little bit deeper as well. You want someone to cover... Um, Mohamed Salah on that side he's as well. right-footed, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so is, he that, is. is that so that when Salah cuts inside, he can also come inside and challenge with a strong foot? Whether or not they were thinking about that, I don't know. But, it, I mean, it's an, an argument to be made. And I do like the idea of, you know, Salah cutting onto his stronger foot and then Tomiyasu defending on his stronger side. Um, but I, I generally think that it's probably just to do with defensive solidity overall. I think that... Steve Hankey's making the point that he's very bipedal as well. Hmm. Ambifootstress, as I like to say. Ambifootstress. I think it has a lot to do with set pieces also, because it means they essentially have four centre-backs in the mm. back line for when you're defending yeah, you've got Ben White on the other side, yeah. Yeah, you've got Liverpool have Alexander-Arnold, who's great at delivery, Simikas, who's great at delivery, and Van Dijk and Matip, who are really good at getting their heads on the ball. So yeah. you have and you can outnumber them for set pieces. It's really useful. And in terms of flexibility as well, with Arteta, like John's saying, he made a few like, key decisions in this game that it changed things. So at half-time, so when, when Thiago and Henderson were getting all the ball... Um, basically their 4-2-3-1 is like a 4-2-4 really Um, and Klopp's talking about after the game it was an interview I can't remember his name it was a really good interview and he was saying how they're not playing the way he wants them to the the floor are playing in a straight line they should be they have two different lines so there should be a bit of depth between them and they alternate positions and they swap and whatever so Thiago was getting too much of the ball and controlling things because they had Odegaard so basically Odegaard was playing up next to them in the pressing shape was a 4-2-3-1 so there was Odegaard behind the central striker, Jesus, where they yeah. form a, a flat two. What they did in the second half was change it to a 4-1-4-1. So party sat a bit deeper behind the four. So you had Xhaka going tight to Henderson and you had Odegaard going tight to Thiago, which is limited the amount of time they had in the ball, right. which then meant Liverpool were trying to play wide later on in the game. Yeah. And so later on, he took on Kieran Tierney to make it a back five. I don't think it was purely defensive. Yeah. At this point, he'd taken Salah off, Klopp taking Salah off yeah. and put on, well, put Henderson further forward. And I think it's because Salah is just pulled wide the whole time 
because you want to play Nunes to the middle with Jota through the middle, which means there's very little space for Salah to then go and attack through that half space. So yeah. he then ends up staying wide. He's kept quiet with Tomiyasu, who has him kept in. Alexander-Arnold is deeper. He's not getting the ball down that right wing to Salah quite so easily. Henderson's sort of stuck in the middle. And then, But later on, when they're trying to play wide and funnel everything through the wide areas, if you have wing backs, you can double up and get three V2s in the wide areas. So you had Tierney, Xhaka... And Martinelli, I think, later on in that game, who were able to then double up. So Liverpool couldn't go through the middle, couldn't go wide, and then they weren't able to play the way they wanted to. Yeah, okay. Um, Seb, let me ask you, uh, JJ just mentioned Salah uh, there being being taken off um, with about 30 minutes left to play, which is quite unusual in a, in a game that Liverpool aren't leading at the time. Do you think that is as a result of what, what JJ, was sa- JJ was saying and what we said about Tommy Yassi before kind of marking him out of the game? Or is there something a bit broader to it? It's not been fantastic this season so far. No, I, I think he achieved an amazing level about 12 months ago, sort of between that kind of October to February period last season. But then we're talking about kind of Tommy Yasu playing on the left and having the benefit of his right foot. But how many times have you seen Salah go down a fullback's left-hand side and go to the mm. touchline? And then, you know, so like, it's not like he, he's not Aaron Robin. He doesn't just have one trick. And so when he's not doing anything in that situation, that's quite concerning. I think there's something in how Liverpool are being trained at the moment. Klopp spoke through the summer about the challenges of this season, the unique ones because of the scheduling of the World Cup. Yeah. And Salah seems um, either by design or unintentionally, he seems stuck in quite a low gear. Like there's still a, a really good footballer there, but it's operating at kind of 65% of the speed of usual uh, and the intensity of usual uh, of normal. And um, I think it shows. Like I think if you, I thought one of the most jarring contrasts is actually, if you, if you look at Arsenal's start and JJ mentioned Art's writing about this, that's the start we're used to seeing from Liverpool at Anfield or have been for the last sort of three or four years. And Liverpool are kind of, Salah's kind of a, a cipher for everything Liverpool are at the moment, which is they are just a collection of very good players with a lot of their intensity stripped away. And I don't know, like the season will tell whether that's a kind of um, a powering down for the sake of longevity or being able to manage a Champions League campaign and a, Euro, and a, and a Premier League um, effort, a, a title tilt. Uh, yeah. But it's it was weird to see. It's very jarring, the contrast. Yeah. You only get one touch in the box on a Sunday. And so normally his average, so I went through his touches per game to see if there's any difference in how he's playing. Um, his average of 55.97 touches per game in 21-22, the last season, with about 11 touches in the box per average per 90. But this season he's having about six touches fewer per game, generally. And then he's getting like one fewer in the box. So not really anything to, to, to read in too much. But in this game, they kept him so quiet that he was only having one touch in the box. I think a lot of it really does have to do with um, Alexander-Arnold's deeper positioning and his yeah. expected assists apparently have just fallen through. What's the situation with, with Alexander-Arnold's deeper positioning? And also a little follow-up question to that as well. I mean, when Alexander-Arnold was taken off, it doesn't really seem like Liverpool have a have a backup for him except uh, Milner and, um, and Joe Gomez. Right? Calvin Ramsey, Aberdeen superstar right-back that they signed for a bit of money. Why didn't he come on? I don't think he's ready to come out of being injured. I'd right. imagine he'll take a little while. Klopp tends to take a little while with his players, especially young ones, to learn the tactical setup properly yeah. to be able to do that. And dropping him into a Liverpool team like this, if you're brand new, maybe a bit nervous, would be you could potentially like damage the player, like dentist yeah. confidence if he's getting done in. Well, it's, I mean, speaking of dented confidence, I'm starting to feel very bad for Alexander Arnold because like I saw, I can't remember who it was, but I saw someone 
um, referring to the situation with him at the moment as like similar to to what's happened with Maguire, like you know, like uh, it, the where it looks like maybe it's now impacting his performances because he was like he was quite bad in this game. He made like a couple of uh, critical mistakes which led to goals, but also uh, the person I wish I could remember who tweeted this, but the person who tweeted about this made the point that those aren't mistakes that. Alexander Arnold would normally make. It's almost like it's a kind of double double down as a result of the negative criticism. I, th- and- I think you overthink it, and people are going at Liverpool when they sense a bit of weakness. There's a real hunger to go and punish it. Yeah. And so I think it, it dominoes. They fall a little bit like that. And it's deeper positioning. So what they're doing is they're they're sort of building in a three back three, keeping him deeper. Yeah. Which, when you think about what he's best at, it's that it's playing these long passes and being able to create from wide areas or in the half space in the final third. You'll see him often drop into the six position as well. Yeah. But if you keep him deeper. In theory, you might give him more protection because you've got Henderson in front of him. You can come over and cover him in front. You, do, you don't get that much protection from Salah, but he's coming back a lot more in recent games, I've noticed, especially in the 4-2-3-1 that they're playing. Um, that means that Simicast pushes forward on the left. So what you get is the back three of, say, Matip, Van Dijk and Alexander-Arnold will form a bit of a uh, triangle with the deepest player being Matip because he's a right-sided centre-back. And then you'll have a player, normally Henderson, Thiago could drop in or Fabinho could drop in to form a diamond. So you've got options to pass through the lines. Lots of teams do this, like Chelsea are doing it under Potter now as well. There's loads of things you can do with that. Um, but if you sit, sit him slightly deeper, you tend to have players not marking him as much, which means that when he picks up the ball, he's a free man in space, who's so like a deep-lying playmaker, yeah. just wide, just deeper than he was previously. So he's not getting forward as much, so they're not leaving the space, because what teams are exploiting is the space between the centre-backs and the full-backs. And the goal that Arsenal scored the first one is Saka playing wide of Tsimikas, so the ball goes through the gap between centre-back and full-back, so he runs in, that's where they get back, and then that's it's not an error of right, Simicast, it's just a tactical thing that people know to exploit now. Yeah. Uh, and in the past, Alexander Arnold's been called out for it loads of times, but it tends to be something that's filled with it. But Arsenal know that, and then they're overloading that left side. is always making runs on the left side. Another tactical, deliberate point made by Arteta is to have the overlapping left-back, uh, yeah. left-sided midfielder, Xhaka, come over. So they're always getting wide of him, so Alexander Arnold's stuck. You see the goal that he scored the first one, uh, Alison Arnold's basically dealing with three players at once in front of him. He's surrounded, and they're doing it on purpose, and it's really hard to deal with. Like, yeah. You need support from someone further up to come back and support him so he can not have to cover too many. Because any player, like Paolo Maldini, would struggle to deal with three players on one. Yeah. John, I mean, on Liverpool's formation changes recently, do you, do you think we'll see them continued for the rest of the season? And is it fair to say that one beneficiary appears to be Roberto Firmino, who has played quite well when Liverpool have, have had that two-striker system. I think the question is going to be why have they switched their formation around? Yeah. I think the reason for that is because their, pre- their high press isn't working at the moment. Yeah. The reason why they're constantly exposed is because teams are able to move the ball through them in the areas that they want, like JJ is saying there. Yeah. Arsenal did that really easily. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. And I think they are definitely targeting that area around Alexander-Arnold because one of the things I've noticed that Liverpool are doing a lot at the moment is they're getting pulled over in the in the final line a lot. So they're going... They're, they're, they're always a man away from where they want to be. So you get, you end up with like Virgil van Dijk pushing out to the left-back spot. This was what we saw in the first goal. So you get in behind Simicast, the, the left-back. Van Dijk pulls across, Matip pulls across, and they're, they're now essentially playing the, the left-back and then the left-centre-back role. Yeah. And then you've got um, Alexander-Arnold as the, as the essentially right centre-back in that situation. And then you've got two or three... Um, Arsenal players around them um, and I think that the problem is is that, I mean that's fine if you want to be risky in that way that's fine but the problem is is that because they're so open in their in their press there's just a volume of chances now or build-ups just going through those areas and then, and then trying to hit 
on the on the far side and i think that's the problem so i think that the formation change is about essentially moving from their 433 where with the 433 the 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 problem they always have is well if, if you have a front three you're you're almost sacrificing area in the wide areas um and so what what liverpool have been doing is they've been dropping their wider players so salah and diaz um, usually dropping them to help out with the fullback so that you're not getting overloaded in those areas yeah. and then what they do is they push out with their eight so often Jordan Henderson will push out on a fullback rather than the wide player just to stop those wide players getting pulled forward now it seems as though they flip that because the 4-4-2 that they're now essentially in when they're pressing on the 4-2-4 that, that it was ending up in yesterday uh, the idea then is that you just sit your, your wingers deeper anyway and then you have an extra striker who can help with the forward press so that you're not quite so exposed in the middle and you don't end up with your eights pushing out all the time Um, and I think the problem was as as Klopp was saying is that they were the way that Arsenal were playing because they were playing with their four in build-up and they were sitting quite deep they were just pulling those wide players forward generating huge spaces around the two in midfield moving the ball into those areas and then getting in behind the fullback because when obviously when the ball goes into those areas the fullbacks push up you generate space there play the ball in behind and then you've only got three defensive players all get pulled across you've got space at the far side yeah I was going to say the other thing is that because they've bought obviously Darwin Nunez they're trying to change a little bit what they're doing you have to evolve constantly otherwise you get you stay still and you need to keep going forward uh, to adapt and people make you you want to be less predictable is what you want to try and be and so if you play Firmino as the, the the nine, what he's done in the past, I think everyone knows this now, is that he just dropped deep. Yeah. So essentially you're playing a 4-4-2 diamond because he's yeah. the 10 with two strikers ahead and your strikers are Salah and, and Mane. Yeah. Now, you, you get, the secret to being a good manager is getting all your best players on the pitch. The best players are Diaz, uh, Jota, well, Nunez maybe there and Salah. So it's your best four attackers. You put them on this pitch at the same time. Ahead of Firmino. Well, I don't know. I mean, I put Firmino in there, but you want to try and get Nunez. He's had, he's had a good season so far, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, he's scored loads of goals. He's had one of his most successful seasons ever, I think, at the start yeah. of it so far, like per 90. But you want to try and get Nunez in and like you want to build his confidence. You try, yeah. not, you're not rebuilding, but you're trying to get a new team. Like Liverpool, the second oldest, I think it's first team or squad, one of the two. Yeah. They think him up and Arsenal's the second youngest, something yeah, like that. Yeah. So they're a little bit older. And when you want to be able to press and be energetic and, and brave, then you want to have energy and confidence and dynamism. Another thing, like when you compare the two, like because Arsenal's got this young squad and they're playing brave. It's really risky football. Like, they can easily get taken away on the counter, and I think it'll happen a couple of times a season. But like they were leaving their back four, were like one v one with Liverpool's uh, attackers. Yeah. So when you had Saka in the front line of the press, Saka wasn't marking the left back. He was going inside between the left back and the centre back, which meant that Ben White was pushing up on Simicast. That's yeah. really aggressive. Well, I'm going to come and ask, I'm going to ask John about that in a, in a, in a second because John can use his favourite yeah. phrase in, in, in football. Um, I hate Seb, Joe. What? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Seb, before we do that, before we move back to Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, um, I haven't got the league table in front of me, but I don't think I need to look at it to see that it's a bit of a sorry sight for them at the moment. Uh, I, I also know every time, every time a new season starts and I like to say, uh, can we call it already? And it's only October. Uh, everyone shouts at me and says no. Uh, but at least with the with the the form of City and Arsenal at the moment, is it is it already too late for Liverpool? Aren't they aren't they something like ten points plus behind? Fourteen. Now? Fourteen points behind. Is it? I mean, a Liverpool have Liverpool lost the chance to challenge for the title? Uh, if this was still last season, I'd say no. But I think the difference this year is that City's only real weakness a year ago was that. In games where they needed a goal, they didn't have that traditional fourth full number nine. Um, yeah. They didn't have a player that, even if they played badly, could get them goals by himself. And now they do. And so you feel like 10 points this season is a much broader gap than it was a year ago. Also, yeah. I, I feel like 
I don't know, maybe maybe this will be proven wrong, but it does feel like Liverpool's energy is being directed elsewhere. Like it's one of those where I think Liverpool remain a little bit fixated on um, righting the wrongs of, of last season's European Cup. Like, I think that's a that's probably the trophy they want to win again. Um, yeah. And I think this squad is better equipped to do it because I, I think this group of players, it's interesting that we talk about the kind of the range of options at the top of Liverpool's formation because during their sort of their best years on the club, it's been very permanent. It's been very set in stone who would be starting in which position and in what combination. And now it feels more like a, a team that you pick on mood or depending on the opposition you're facing. And yeah. I don't know, I, I, that, that to me seems a little bit more suited to knockout football, um, potentially, uh, as the Champions League goes forward and also as the, after the World Cup ends. So we'll see. But I, it's very difficult to see them becoming mechanical in the way that City are. Like, I, I, like Arsenal City are playing sort of two different um, forms of the game in a way like City is a kind of evolved version of what they've always been whereas Arsenal's much more high energy and Liverpool don't really have either of those things at the moment like they're, yeah. they're not Arsenal or City in the kind of like the, the, the challenger form I guess Yeah John on Arsenal there's a couple of things that I, I want to ask you the first is like we, we you know we can see their evolution at the moment it seems like clearly they're the second best team in, in, in the league um, they're doing things like you know the game management at the end of this game against Liverpool looks a little bit shaky but they managed to get through with a win that's a sort of it's kind of ending to a game that you might have expected them to, to concede a goal you know a season or two ago but you know given that we're now they're top of the league uh, after nine games, they've won eight of them. We have to talk about them as, as title challengers as a result of that. But therefore, the only team to compare them to naturally is Man City. Like, h- how far off Man City are they? Like, where are they in terms of their evolution versus where City is, as Seb was just referring to? Yeah, I think it's an interesting comparison, right? Because Arsenal are playing Man City-style football, right? They're trying to do similar things and they're clearly on that trajectory that that Manchester City are already on. And I've just got FB ref up in front of me and Man City are plus 15, just under plus 16 actually expected goal difference. So looking good, Arsenal plus 10 comfortably the second best team in terms of the underlying numbers mm. uh, and that's impressive when you include the fact that they've played three of the the, the best teams in the league right and Can then you just got- clarify that when you say the plus 16 expected goal difference that means that again when man city against teams that they're playing they're expected to score 16 goals more than concede yeah, so in in each game yeah. in each game that Man City are playing at the moment, they're put. You would expect them to put up around one point seven seven expected goals more than their opponent, right? Which means that you're almost always going to be winning those games, right? Because you're you're giving yourself a decent chance of, of scoring more. Now Arsenal are at one point one three, which is still massive. That means that if they played at this rate through the whole season, you would expect them to win their yeah. games by one goal right obviously variance comes into play and stuff so these are two teams are playing really really high level football the next team down is Newcastle with 7.7 and they're quite comfortably third place actually and then you come down to Liverpool interestingly uh, although the the numbers haven't been updated with the result yesterday so they will drop a little bit so Arsenal have gone from being I think a team who you would talk about as top four challengers to now I think uh, you know being the second best team in the league now if it weren't for Man City we would be obviously talking about them as like really good title contenders and obviously anything can happen but in terms of the underlying numbers to me it's it's just it's so hard to get close to to where man city are at and so yeah. in many respects like this season has been the season where arteta has moved i think really moved from from one level to the next level but there still are areas of improvement so yeah. you want me to talk about rest defense now rest defense rest defense is basically what 
a lot of these high possession teams are always thinking about because rest defense is how you are structured defensively when you're in an attacking moment so if you're a team who has a lot of possession you're obviously going to be in the opponent's third a lot of the time um, and you're going to be holding onto the ball trying to generate a, a chance if you lose the ball obviously because you've got so many players forward in the opposition's third final third you are then likely or, or, or liable to be attacked on by the opposition. You're vulnerable to counterattacks. That's so. right, yeah. So rest defence is all about how well-structured you are to deal with those with those counterattacks. And now Pep Guardiola has been... I, I, I always say this, but he lies awake at night worrying about rest defence. Like, I, I, I have this funny joke with one of my friends where, you know... Man, is it funny? It's really funny. We'll it's so judge. funny. We'll find out. Uh, but it, th this idea that, you know, when Man, Man City play against Man United and they win 6-3 yeah. and Pep Guardiola goes home to his wife and, and she's like, oh, great, we, you, a big win. We can go out for dinner tonight. And he's like, no, we conceded three goals. Because that's yeah. what he cares about. He right. cares about the, the, the chances that they're giving up in transition. That's and I think the concerns of these elite coaches. That is the concern of these elite, elite coaches. And I think we've already seen Arsenal play against... Manchester United and come unstuck against them there. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there's there was elements in the Spurs game that showed the same thing. So again, I think Arsenal were really good in the Spurs game, but I think that they they gave up a few chances in those artificial transitions that Antonio Conte like really wants his teams to generate. So that that's the, the, this is the areas where, you know, you can have all of the possession in the world, but if you give up those big chances, they can cause you to to come unstuck. So I think that there's still work to be done in that respect, but it's it's the final boss I guess for possession coaches who are playing positional football to be able to to get their rest defence sorted so I think Pep Guardiola is already there to a, to an extent yeah. Mikel Arteta is, is on the way there but so I, I'm always going to say Man City are the favourites but so yeah Arsenal end up with two teams that play the same and win the games the best way to play it's really fun to watch yeah. Arsenal games are really fun to watch just now do you think Man City are fun to watch I mean Holland yeah. is fun to watch for sure do you think Man City generally are fun to watch? I don't find it that fun. I find it really fun. It's really more fun in real life if you're in the stadium because right. you see all the parts yeah, moving I've never around. Seen, I've like never seen them live. It's like watching a computer play chess and it's just moving constantly. Yeah. You don't even have to think about it. Can you say that? I've never seen them live. Isn't that what you see, say with bands? When I say live, you know what I mean, right? I've never seen them in the flesh. Yes. IRL. I have seen them live because I've watched them live on the telly. But it's different when there are people there. They all look so much bigger in real life. Do they? Yeah. I think they look smaller. I imagine what I would look like next to them on the pitch. And then I think they all look tiny. <laughs> I remember I went to see Chelsea play at Stamford Bridge. And um, Kurt Zuma is yeah. like the most massive boy you've ever right. seen. They just look so much stronger. Like I walked past Hugo Lloris in the, in the mix zone and he's massive as well. He's strong. Cut yeah. yeah. Zuma's height is listed in metres and I don't understand them. So I can't. That's on metres. Anyway, right, there we go. That's Arsenal-Liverpool. Uh, a fun game it was. Uh, we'll have a quick break and when we come back we're going to discuss some, some more football. Would you like to be the fountain of football knowledge within your friendship group? Either down the pub or in the group chat, because if so, the Athletic Football Tactics podcast is surely the podcast for you. I'm Ali Maxwell, and every week the Athletics Tactics guru, Michael Cox, its data whiz Mark Kerry and myself take a tactical deep dive into the week's biggest talking points. This week we'll be assessing the ever-changing role of the modern number nine and wondering if it's having a renaissance. We're also taking a look at Manchester City against Liverpool and asking if this is still the biggest fixture that the Premier League has to offer or not. 
Make sure to check out our back catalogue too. Three years worth of episodes featuring more nostalgic lookbacks at iconic teams and seasons from yesteryear like Carlo Ancelotti's Christmas tree formation at AC Milan or Mesut Ozil's Arsenal legacy. It's good fun and the experts bring a ton of insight. So join us. Just search for the Athletic Football Tactics podcast wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. Okay, Everton won to Manchester United. Um, who watched this one? Who didn't watch it? Do we all watch it here? Yes, I did a video on it on Tifo IRL. Seb didn't watch it, so we'll come back to him a little bit later. Um, here's the thing I want to start with, with, with Everton, because in the lead-up to this game, we heard that Everton you know, had, hadn't lost for six games, um, and also uh, that uh, you know, defensively they were looking rather solid. But we were having a look last week, weren't we? And I think I heard this referenced on another podcast. I can't remember which one. I've really got to start writing these things down, Steve, so that I don't forget yeah. who it's it is so to you. reference. Who yeah. was it? Can't remember. Anyway, it's a good show. I'm sure it'll come to me. But uh, someone was saying, when they were talking about Everton's defence, uh, that they were saying that actually um, the where you would expect them to be based on their uh, expected goals against is uh, 17th. That's where they are in the league and expected goals against. Uh, whereas actually where they are in terms of goals uh, conceded, they have a very, very high record. I think they're in the, t- the top four for a very small number of goals conceded. So there's a bit, bit of a difference there. The key difference was Jordan Pickford, who was is doing an amazing job this season. And uh, his, what's the goalkeeping XGA one? Post-shot XG. Post-shot, post-shot XG, which, which means, John? So post-shot XG looks at where the ball is going after it's been struck rather than before it's been struck, which is what XG is. So XG just looks at chances and said, if you took those chances, most of the time you'd expect it to go in in this, in this amount of times. Whereas the post-shot XG looks at where the ball's heading towards in the goal. So if you hit the ball like clack, clack, clack it top corner, yeah. then you're more likely to score than if you dolly it towards the, the so keeper in the middle. So if Jordan Pickford has a really positive score, that means that he's saving a lot of chances that would ordinarily be expected to be uh, goals. Yeah, he's overperforming yeah. his numbers. So there he's, we go keeping them in yeah. games. Yeah. So it's unclear what to expect from, from this game because uh, on the one hand, Everton are keeping lots of you know clean sheets and, and, and preventing lots of chances, uh, but also the goalkeeper's massively outperforming. Uh, what did you see from Everton's defence in this game, JJ? Um, well, they were getting turned over midfield because well, Lampard sort of spoke to it after the game saying that he, they want to be able to play a bit more expansive football. Like everyone wants to play expansive entertaining football, don't they? Yeah. Everton don't really I don't think they have the players for it just at the moment They're, I want to play dull football do you I yeah. want to play if I football. was a coach that's what I would do I'd play very I'd play the most dull football and I'd see how long <laughs> I could do that for before I was fired if you're trying to play possession football and make it more fun to watch and you're either passing too slowly or too quickly as Everton are doing both of yeah. uh, you're liable to turn over the ball in the field but then there's some mistakes like Idrissa Gay just gives the ball away for one of them uh, like having been given the ball straight to him yeah. I think like so Everton had gone six games unbeaten in the Premier League before this game and yeah. they conceded seven goals but two wins and four draws I think uh, yes yeah, something like that but then the uh, so like the XGA for example expected goals against is 14.8 and they've conceded uh, nine there are two teams who have a worse expected goals than them in, in the league so yeah. defensively they're not actually that good no they've got a lot of players missing I think through injury I think they started the season trying to play in like a back three. They've changed that to be more of a four-five-one. Yeah. Um, but like little errors, you can't really count for that. It's not Lampard's fault that Awobi's tried to do a step over against Casemiro. Sure. And he's he's left his position, so he goes from the left hey side now, of the field to the right. I won't hear anything negative said about Alex Awobi. The, the you greatest goal scorer. I just love Awobi. Seb, I know you didn't watch this game, but did you see Alex Awobi's goal? I saw his goal. I saw his mistake, and I, I feel for him because it becomes 
like he spent the season sort of rebuilding his reputation and make that mistake and it's naivety it's a player being in the wrong position yeah. and you don't do that against a player that's got you know a million european cups to his name as a holding midfielder sure, sure, sure. and that it's, goal, um, it was brutal i did think of jj and you when that happened when i saw it being reported on twitter i knew that i knew that this was coming he, yeah. he knew it as soon as he did it he jumps up in the air he's like ah why have yeah, i done that like sure. he knows not to do it because he's been he's always been coached like heavily on how to play midfield and he's got Lampard will be there helping him. He knows how to do that. Yeah. Uh, he's moved from being a wide player. He moved to right back and then I think they conceded a goal almost immediately. It was Marcus Rashford getting in between him and the centre back, but it was off no, it was a handball instant of the the AR. Right, yes. Um I think the things Steve that Steve Hankles has very helpfully put the list of Everton's injuries in the in the plan for us. Lots of defenders oh, injured. Nice. Yerry Mina, Mason Holgate, Nathan Patterson, Ben Godfrey all out at the moment um, Andrus Townsend as well so you know defensively speaking yeah you lose if you lose you, like any team loses their best players or their important players it makes it a lot harder to try and win yeah. the, a lot of their chance creation comes from wide areas so Gordon and Damari Gray uh, putting balls into the box or even Seamus Coleman hooking them in something like that Mikulenko and then you need someone who can either win the first ball like Dominic Calvert-Lewin, always injured, mm. or you need players pushed up to win the second, but they're playing a bit deeper. So there's quite a bit of depth between their... They're not playing a really high line. They're, they're trying to press... The first line's trying to press quite highly and aggressively, but the rest of them is a bit deeper so that they can then retreat yeah. and deal with it. They're very, very medium. Like We've known this about Everton for a long time. They spent a lot of money, a lot of players who were all right. Yeah. And they're just a medium team and they look okay. They're not... Lampard's trying to build them into something that he wants them to be like, but it's unclear exactly what that um, identity is yeah. and whether they have the players to do it. And there's nothing you can really do if all your best players are injured or you're constantly having to change your starting lineups. So you can't yeah. build any cohesion. Um, and like United won this with mistakes that Everton made. Same way that United considered a goal with a mistake that they made. Yeah. There's some things you see from, it, from Man United, how they're maybe trying to be more like a Ten Hag team in this game. Because it was very end-to-end. Everton were very much trying to be aggressive and make it like that Goodison Park. Like, rah, I'm going straight at you. Mm. And get the ball forward really quickly. And because it was end-to-end, you've got no control over it. And obviously what Ten Hag's wanted in the past is you kind of you get control of the ball, right? And you slow things down. So later in the game, they started getting forward to the opposition half and then playing the extra pass and passing it sideways a little bit. A couple of just those kind of boring, like pass, 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 back to the same player situations. Just to slow it down so then you can get into your rest defence. Sure. Like John would have liked and then, um, yeah, he'd love that. So just to prevent the counterattack, and that's what they did. But the, the chances they're scoring are still all these Solskjaer counterattack chances. <laughs> well, uh, Everton medium team there. Yeah, medium. Coincidentally, my favourite level of excitement. Wow, I've missed being away. I thought you were going to say uh, your favourite, uh, like sorcerer to visit. Medium. Yeah. If your favourite blogging platform. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's just an accurate one, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, uh, Manchester United had a decent performance there, John. I actually think they were quite poor in this game. Oh, um, just just following on, <laughs> just following on <laughs> from what, what JJ say, was saying. Can I say actually, I watched the first twenty minutes, and then I watched Grand Designs, and then I watched the last ten minutes, and they looked all right. Which which did you enjoy the most? Was it the Grand Designs? Grand Designs, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. What was the house? What it was a long house. <laughs> did they overspend? Oh, did yeah. they try and be this their own plot. project manager? Uh, no, no, the they were sensible. But my favourite thing about this Grand Designs was it was a, it was a multi-generational long house. When you say long house, like a long boat. It's but... a long house. Like a, a, that's the actual name for it, but it's just a very long house. Okay. And the land cost them 250 grand. 
The build cost them 900 grand, and they were doing it in order to move their parents in. But when Kevin Plant spoke way to away. their parents... That's why it's a long hand. Long, yeah. not like a square. But like, <laughs> when Kevin McLeod spoke to their parents, the parents who were elderly, they were like, yeah, we don't really want to move in. That's <laughs> <laughs> me and my wife laughing so much. Like they're spending all this money. And their parents are like, I don't want to go there. Anyway, they did go there. They went there. <laughs> Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about... What are we talking about? Manchester United. Communication issues with Everton. our parents, is what I think. Man United were poor. Yeah, I, I'm with JJ. I think they, they generated chances through the opposition, losing the ball, and then being in a possession structure, which means that obviously there's lots of spaces to exploit. The Man United way. Yeah, and look, that, that's a legitimate way of, of generating and scoring goals, but I don't feel as though they were... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you're really quite proud of that one, weren't you? But I really don't think that that's the way that they are trying to generate chances at the moment. Um, no. I think when it comes to coming up against oppositions in their defensive structure, they're finding it much harder to break them down. Let me ask you about Anthony because Anthony scored another goal. He scored in every Premier League goal, <clears throat> every Premier League game he's played in so far. Uh, Ten Hag said some interesting stuff about him after the game. He said, obviously, he's scoring goals and he's shown he can do that. But, you know, he said when he watches his performance, he can see lots of areas for improvement for him. What do you think he's talking about? Um, I, I suspect probably that he's touching on that, that element that we've, we've said there, that, you know, when you're coming up against teams who are going to sit deep and try and cause you problems, there's clearly issues for, for Manchester United. And it's worth saying, I think, that the, the Premier League is, a, is an interesting league because it's so valuable to be in it that teams at the bottom of the table are just going to do anything they can to just stodge themselves yeah. against teams like that, um, which, I, which I don't think you see in other leagues so much because the, the financial gap between, say, the Bundesliga and the Zweite Bundesliga is not as high. So if you drop down for a season, it's not the end of the world. Whereas I think mm. in the Premier League, because you get that, that massive drop down, you, just, you get teams who are just happy to sit deep and, and play in a way that can actually cause these sorts of sides a lot of trouble. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think when you when you have a player like Anthony who you've brought in, he's a marquee signing, he is supposed to be a creative player. I think he probably wants to see him generating more against those those low block defences. Casemiro, let me ask you about Casemiro, because I feel like there is a sort of um, misunderstanding about what he actually is and what he does. Uh, obviously, as we've heard from John there, Manchester United under Ten Hag trying to do things in a slightly different way. Ten Hag wants them to build through as opposed to just chasing counterattacks as they were doing beforehand. Casemiro, not a build-up player, and if anything, when he, in, in that Real Madrid team that he was so successful in, often they just moved him completely out of the way in order to build up. So I feel like it's worth clarifying what it is that we should actually expect him to do, because he's not gonna he's not gonna be you know Rodri. No, well he's I mean he was part of one of the best midfield trios of all time. Yeah, I'm not saying he's bad. Like, no, but if you look at the the skill set, like Kroos and and Modric. Modric is the, more the player who's like a ten playing as an eight. Tony Kroos is just a definite eight who's more like a yeah. six. If you want to. And Casemiro is the anchor that holds it all together. Yeah, uh, he's played instead of Scott McTominay in this game next to Eriksson. Eriksson's your player who can he's like the cross kind of player that can progress it, even though he's more like a Modric really. Yeah. Then you've got Bruno Fernandez as a ten. You have to play him there because Bruno Fernandez is just not great playing as an eight. Sure. So you can't really play the three that maybe you'd want. But Ten Hag's teams have generally played a four-two-three-one in the past. Like he had Donny Van de Beek doing it for him as a ten, or, yeah. or Tadic stuff like that in the past. And so. Uh, what Casemiro is really good at, what he likes doing, he says, is winning the ball because he reads the game really well. That's the thing he's best at is reading it from deeper positions. He, he almost scored a header by getting in late on. So he's playing more as a box-to-box. But players aren't, you don't have to pigeonhole them as one particular 
role. He's good at doing that thing he did the Real Madrid team because it suited exactly what he's doing. He's just a really good footballer yeah. who's won a thousand Champions Leagues. So like he, sure. he's quite good. Yeah. And generally good players can play anywhere you want in different systems. And you don't build a system specifically and say, oh, we need a player that's exactly this guy to go in here. No. Some people do. But generally you're getting really good players. So it's Man United structure anyway. You get really good players in, then you build a system around them that makes absolute most of all their individual talents. Yeah. Casemiro's is winning the ball back and then springing a counter. That's what he's good at. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, another thing that's on Anthony as well. Paul Scholes said the other day, I think after the Europa League game, he got hooked at half time, I think, with Sancho as well, mm. is that he said he was a one trick pony. Because mm. all he seems to do is he's only got a left foot, he doesn't really ever use his right ever. Sure. Um, he's actually got many tricks, he's a many trick pony. But yeah. they, they tend to be tricks <laughs> that don't do an awful lot. It's like a FIFA five star skill player. Right. Do loads of tricks on the wing and then have to pass it backwards anyway because you can't go past your man. He has scored a goal in every Premier League game he's yeah, played. Yeah, he has, yeah. But it's, it's, he's you know, he's a decent player. Like I like watching Anthony. Yeah. I've watched lots of him at Ajax as well. I really like him. But uh, when you're playing against... In, well, he's in the Premier League now. He's not that's a huge difference wherever. He's played Champions League before. Sure. But you know he's going to go inside. Yeah. And he's not as good at like going past people as Iron Robin was, for example. You can be a one-trick pony and get away with it, like Robin. Yeah. Or like Stanley Matthews. Sure. No, he's, he was, <laughs> he was a one-trick pony. Everyone, everyone fell for that. I've read plenty of Stanley Matthews. Right, those people analyses. back in the past were so stupid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can block him, you stop his left foot, and you see what he does is he gets the ball wide. He's normally staying out wide, Dallow slightly inside. And then he's having to pass it backwards. Mm. The times he's able to get in is when they're in transitional moments and he's staying out wide, first of all, yeah. to drag the fullback away from centre back. And so there's space between. In. And then he sneaks in. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. A little sneaky snag. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, there we go. Is there anything else that anyone would like to say? I know you didn't watch this game, set, but is there anything, any points you'd like to make about Manchester United or Everton? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, that the Everton expected goals against thing is. is I find it quite frustrating because I think that. Um, like I, I think you can have two separate conversations about how whether a team is defending well in inverted commas or if a team is just fortunate. I yeah. think Everton are improved. I, th- I think that's a fair summation. And yeah, the goalkeepers had to play really well. But then I think it's a little bit disingenuous to to take Pickford's improvement over the past sort of year or so out of the equation because sure. it's, it, it's like um, remember that period of time, and therefore that literally is what's happening because it has happened. Yeah, I don't think anybody would expect Everton to finish the season or even go into the World Cup with the best defence in the Premier League. But I, no. I think sometimes there has to be a kind of a, a, a middle ground between acknowledging what's happening in the data, very rightly so, because it's not lying. Uh, but at the same time, accepting that Everton, actually yesterday was a little bit, it felt a bit disappointing for Everton, given their improvement yeah. and given how stubborn they've actually become at times, um, that it's um, that you'd almost expect them to get something from that Manchester United team. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would say I would say just to, to finish two things. One, my favourite kind of Seb point is one where he says he doesn't have a point to make at the beginning, but then he makes one, and it's always good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the second thing is that um, I would say just from a kind of broader perspective, it's quite good for Manchester United that they played badly and won won the game. Uh, they obviously got obliterated by Man City the week before, uh, but with the exception of those two games at the beginning of the season, where similarly they were obliterated. Um, they play pretty well, and they've beaten, they've beat, or at least they've got good results against teams that are difficult to play or difficult to break down. They beat Arsenal. They've now beat uh, Everton in a game that, as Seb rightly says, Everton can be a bit disappointed coming away with with zero points. I think it's that their performances and the way in which they are obliterated when they lose it makes it very confusing as to how good or bad they are. Because on any given weekend, they're either the worst team that's ever played football or they're good. You know, like they—they they seem like a team that like could finish in the top four. Fairly feels like easily, a right, like a, a consequence of the discourse, doesn't it? 
Like there yeah. has to be a strong opinion one way or the other about what Man United have done, just because that's the nature of the club. I think sure. this has been Man United perennially though for yeah. since Alex yeah. Ferguson. Amazing right? players as well. It's really good so much in them, yeah. attacking players, but they're not the structures to really accommodate them. Apart from in games where they're the underdog, in which case they mm. actually can be quite dangerous on the break. And it's, it's still feels like we're in that cycle. And Eric yeah. Ten Hag is doing his best to try and drag them into, a, I suppose, more functional in other games um, structurally. But yeah. I think I, I've been actually quite pleasantly surprised by by Anthony. I agree with JJ in the sense that I, I think there's he's quite a limited player. I think he's still a really good one though, and I I thought that every time he would come inside against a Premier League defence, he'd kind of get lost a little bit because he's quite a willowy guy. He's quite slight. I've never seen him um, be. I've never seen him be kind of physically challenged, at least not in the Eredivisie, and I clearly haven't seen enough of his Champions League games but I've, I've liked what he's done I like that he's running off the ball I, I, I think that there are good things to work with there but like like Sancho before him probably like Martial going back even further and probably um, sort of the middle part of um, Marcus Rashford's career to this point it's going to depend on supply like he's not a, a Robin type player he can get the ball surrounded by two or three defenders and his one trick is so good that he can dominate those three players and create something Anthony yeah. is a component player like he's a really good one, but he's probably not going to. He's not a give him the ball and let's see what happens kind of guy. He's a he's um, he's a little bit of punctuation at the end of an attacking sentence, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Um, and yeah. he's done parts of that pretty well. But he, but a young a young lad with space to improve as well. Yeah, yeah for he's sure. A really good player. He plays for Brazil. Like he's really he's, he's he's not a Man United probably overpaid a little bit, but Man United always have to because well, of yeah, who they are. Yeah. I think it's but more defensively really that you see improvements in him. Like you have seen in this game, he was coming back to help out the right back a yeah. lot. Whereas in the games where he's been hooked or when yeah. they've been absolutely done in, he's come back but too slow or not energetically enough. Yeah. I think the problem with the Sancho's not really creating stuff in the final third, but nor is he getting back early enough to help out in the deeper um, things that you know, deeper situations that you'd have been in. And they, like, I think we talked about this maybe last week as well. Like some of the best Man United teams like ground out results in the yeah. past with players like G Sung Park who would be yeah. playing wide or like Tevez or Rooney playing the wide areas because they're coming back to help and grind out the things like Everton. Sure enough, like they weren't amazing in this game, but they're okay and they're hard to play against. Is when you've got like Anthony Gordon and Demary Gray like running at you in the wide spaces and trying to attack you and Obi's yeah. going about or whatever. Then you need to have players who can help your fullbacks and help be defensively solid, who can then also do things higher up the pitch. And I think they'll see improvements going forward. I would say just to finish, disappointing to see Anthony Martial pick up another injury as well. It just feels like mm. he's just, he just cannot get a run, can he? It's a shame. It's a shame. Young guy. Anyway, I've remembered what the podcast is that I heard that Everton fact on, and it is The Devils in the Details by, who are those guys called? Aaron and Case? Aaron Manese and Case von Hemmen. It's good. That's good, actually. Good. Go and listen to that. Uh, I heard it on there, given that that is a podcast about Manchester United, but I, I think it was in the preview of the Everton mm. game that they did. Worth listening to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for now, video viewers, we're going for a break, but audio listeners, a special treat. I don't know why I'm looking at the camera because you can't see me. A special <laughs> treat for you. Uh, I spoke earlier in this week to Tony Jameson, the new host of the Athletics Football Manager show, all about the show. There's been some changes. Ian McIntosh has been sacked permanently, and he's gone forever now. Not from the Athletic, just from that, that position. Uh, been replaced by Tony. And the new game comes out pretty soon. So, you know, I talked to Tony about that. And I do that now. I'm joined by Tony Jameson now, uh, who is the new host of the Football Manager Show over at The Athletic, replacing Ian McIntosh, uh, which is it's a good day for all of us, isn't it? No longer have to listen to Ian. Uh, so, uh, Tony, tell me, there's been some changes at the, uh, the Football Manager Show. What are they? 
there has been some changes. Yeah, as you say, yeah, Ian's gone and got himself a job upstairs, which meant that I've now been promoted into the manager's hot seat. So I'm going to be hosting the show every Wednesday, and we've retained the services of producer Steve because everyone loves producer Steve mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the FM confessional and obviously all the letters. But we've also got a very exciting co-host, the tactical mastermind, RDF Tactics, is going to be joining us. So, Ooh. yeah, that's going to be quite helpful because... I, like Ian, need all the help in the world with Football Manager. (laughs) The game's changed since I started. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that a little bit. First, let me say, although people are only listening to this and they can't see you, you kind of look like Ian. I don't know if anyone said that to you before, but you have a sort of similar vibe. I've got I've got an air of Ian about me. Okay, well maybe yeah. that's the thing is like maybe he's just sort of like cast me in his own image. You know, like what they do with like sort of Greek gods as they sort of sculpted the next generation. So possibly that's possible. what he's thought. Yeah, he does. He does think of himself as a as a bit omnipotent, doesn't it? Uh, okay, let me let me uh, put this hypothetical to you, Tony. Let's imagine I'm someone who hasn't played Football Manager for a very very long time. I mean, it's difficult mm. to imagine, but let's imagine that anyway. Uh, and uh, actually, the last time I opened it. I was overwhelmed by how much is happening on the screen. I think there's a big barrier to entry for a casual player such as myself. How will the show help me uh, uh, enjoy the game? So I will agree. I will agree. At first, it can look a little bit daunting because the game has developed so much, particularly since I first started playing way back in the day. The joy of Football Manager and the joy of the Football Manager show is think of us as like, you know, those sort of like old walkthrough guides you used to get back in the day, sort of like a bit of a sort of user manual. Mm-hmm. And the game allows you to be as as involved or or not as involved as you need it to be. So there is a, a, a game mode, I suppose, technically, like a sort of choose-your-own-adventure, really. You can delegate all the tasks that no one really likes doing, like training and, you know, nutrition and set pieces, all that sort of stuff that is really, really important and gets the best out of it. But if you don't want to do any of that, if you just want to turn up and, tell 11 players you guys are starting i'm going for a sit down you can do that if you want to get involved and look at the minutiae of every little detail of looking at the tactics looking at the fixture list looking at your training schedules we can help take you through that so we're going to look stage by stage and little moments and little moments and that's why rdf's here to break those barriers down and we're all going to learn together and that's the lovely thing to be honest because you can just as i say turn up and point and click and you're away or we can sit down and we can get the notepads and the spreadsheets out and we can look at data hubs and scatter graphs, but we don't always have to do that. We can just take the easy route if we need to as well. <laughs> Learning to have fun. I like it. Hey, listen, Tony, I'm a gamer, uh, but as uh, listeners to the TIFO podcast will know, I mostly play the game Rocket League. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with that game. It's a car football game. Mm. Um, but why should I exchange the minimal three hours I have playing Rocket League to play Football Manager and listen to your show instead? What's so good about that? I mean, I'm not going to dismiss Rocket League out of hand instantly, of course, because, you know, that's like, it's like saying, you know, I like I like tea. Why should I drink coffee? Because coffee's mm-hmm. also nice as well, you know? Sure, sure. It gives you a different perspective on stuff. Obviously, Rocket League is very bang, smash, in your face, cars playing football. Football manager, you're on T4, you probably like football. There's a high chance it's in the title. Um, obviously, there's less cars. I'm not saying there's no cars, but there's less cars in football manager. Um <laughs> It's all about story. I think Football Manager is all about story. I think it gives every single manager, and I'm going to use the term manager at this point as well, every single manager the chance to manage their football team in the way that they think their football team should be managed at the weekend. And you know what? Sometimes it works. 
Sometimes it doesn't, and that's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, a nice summary. Um, and where, 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 and when? Sorry, can we hear the first episode, Tony? So it comes out every Wednesday via the Athletic app and all of your podcast platforms, and we are very, very excited about it in future as well. Little, little sort of nugget of a spoiler, almost. We're going to be doing some stuff on Twitch and YouTube as well, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But yeah, every single Wednesday, and uh, if you want to come and hang out with us, you're more than welcome. Lovely. Well, I look forward to listening, Tony. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, what a lovely break we had there. And and for the audio listeners, thanks to Tony Jameson. What a great name, Tony. There was two to- there was a lot of Tonys in the game yesterday, wasn't there? there were a few Tonys. <laughs> Twen- <laughs> Anthony Martial. There was Anthony. They combined for a goal. Yeah. The memory uh, of Tony Hibbert. Yes. My mm-hmm. friend Paul Ansor has tweeted me to say two-tone. That goal was a two-tone goal. Pretty cool. I said Tony to Tony. And then I started thinking about Jungle to Jungle. Do you remember that film? Tony the Tiger? No. What? No. T- jungle to Jungle. Tony Ben. Had Martin Short in it. <laughs> Tony Ben. These are d- Okay, here we go. That's the two different... That summarises you both perfectly <laughs> as characters, doesn't it? <laughs> That's your the spectrum, is isn't it? Tony the Tiger, the tiger to Tony ben. Tony ben. All the other Tonys Seb, come in that spectrum. who do you think of when I say Tony? Uh, soprano. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that is good. He's right in the centre of that spectrum, then. Uh, former Australian... Former Australian. Prime Minister. <laughs> former Australian. <laughs> Actually, you, know, you know what I think of is that, is that scene in um, 24-Hour Party People where um, he's yeah. setting up his first club and he meets Mr. Tony. Yeah, Don Tony, you know, yeah, Tony, Tony Wilson. All right, that's enough Tonys. Yeah, it? Tony yeah. Abbott, former Australian Prime Minister, yeah. also famously on camera on the news piece, ate a raw onion like whole. Oh. It was pre- I can't remember the context, but presented this raw onion, huge of it, um, by a reporter and just kind of leaned in and went like, yeah, the most awkward way to eat a vegetable that you could like imagine. So, well, must, a raw onion yeah, must be pretty hard to get through. Who? Skin I don't know if I'll have the jaw. Every single layer. Oh, oh raw yeah. onions. Not if you're a Shrek. Shreks love uh, raw onions. Lots of layers. Do you mean the character Shrek? Yes. They Shreks. No, all of the Shreks. You know, the Shrek race. <laughs> no, that's a, I think that's a Is that Richard... Uh, what's his name? Uh, who, Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. I think that's a Herring joke, isn't it? When he says Shreks, he refers to them as a race. It's quite funny. <laughs> That is good. That's it nearly is, as good as my good. Pep Guardiola joke, then. It is, yeah. I'm still laughing at that one. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. That's all about onions. And now let's talk about Serie A. AC Milan 2, Neil Juventus. Juventus really becoming a solid mid-table team there, John. Yeah, and uh, the numbers back that up. They are solidly mid-table. They are oh. below sides such as Lazio, Fiorentina, Sassuolo, Udinese, Atalanta. Um, those teams obviously being a little bit higher than uh, Atalanta have anyway. But, like... Very much mid-table in terms of the underlying numbers. And uh, yeah, if you watch them for any extended period of time, you'll see why, because they are really looking clueless under... Crap. Under... Allegria. Crap, yes. Is, is it time Crap. for I can't a, remember the last is time Is Allegri going to be going soon? We thought he might be a few weeks ago. I mean, yeah. like, it's worth pointing out the World Cup coming up, although Italy aren't in the World Cup, so lots of those players aren't actually going anywhere. Um, we, you know, is there expectation that some teams might decide that's a good time to to have a refresh of the coaching mm. staff because there's a bit of time to get the new coaches in and build up before games begin again. Do you think there's any chance that, that Allegri is, is for the chopping block or, or yeah. are they still happy to maintain? It's, it's an interesting one because I think he's one of those managers who there are sort of rumours that the club can't really afford to, oh. to, to sack him. Um, and so it, it, you end up with this sort of awkward situation where 
you can't really do anything because you're, you're, you're sort of hamstrung as to having the, the manager. I don't know any of the ins and outs of the yeah. of the finances, but... If that is the case, hypothetically, we don't know if it is, but I feel like we've heard that a lot recently. Is, is this a new thing? Is this, was this happening before and we just didn't know about it? Or is it a thing where managers are being paid so much now that they, no one could afford to fire them? I think it's probably a combination of that and the fact that... The, Times are hard, even in football. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's but it's a big, big old chunk of of money that has to be laid out, right? If you sack a, a manager with a long contract, and I, th- I think I read somewhere that that they have this sort of rolling contracts with some of the managers they move on, who they they continue to pay them while they paying the other manager. So, mm. yeah, I I don't know, yeah, what's going on Double there? Double pay. What are you smiling at, JJ? Nothing. You can't say. No. Okay, fine. Uh, you see, uh, did you do you like Fakayo Tomori? That's a question for you. I do, I do. <laughs> I, 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 I'm Seth! Of curi- <laughs> <laughs> Stop it, blow! <laughs> I I kind of curious about quite how good he is. Like I feel like so one of the reasons I watched this game. Two reasons. I I, I wanted to see Tomori play against Vlavic just because. Vlavic is, is sort of very quickly ascended to becoming this very complete number nine. Right? Whereas at the weekend, I think what, what struck me is how you know how rarely they were actually in direct opposition. I can't mm. even remember Vlavic having a touch in the in the Milan box. Um, obviously, Tomori scored an, an excellent, well-taken goal, a little bit fortuitous, celebrated it as if he was really angry about something, which is always a nice celebration. But I think it's kind of descriptive of where Juve are and that like you're, you're number nine. You cannot like, you cannot examine any potential weaknesses in a defense because every touch he has, and remember Vlavic is quite good at linking the play, but he's not one of those kind of like nine and a half number nines who is actually also a little bit of a playmaker. His, um, his link play is actually quite formulaic and basic and it, it has improved since he was at Fiorentina, but not dramatically so. And he spent most of the game 30 35 yards from goal so i didn't feel like i i didn't feel like i had the the interesting time that i was promised by the fixture is what i'm trying to say no. um and i'm still none the wise right? i think tomorrow is a great player it's just that over time with people kind of um you know milan getting battered by chelsea in the champions league that was a kind of that was a confusing issue with like what his place is in english football what his place should be in the england squad these kind of questions yeah. um i think he's developed really well i just don't know I don't know the right context yet. It's confusing. Um, but Juve are in trouble. Like Juve, like, like the, the sort of saving grace is potentially, well, Chiesa will be back in the new year. But after that kind of injury, and a, a player who is as dynamic as Chiesa is, he's not going to come back as the player he was because it just never happens that way. You need three, six, maybe even a year, year um, to kind of hit a stride. Yeah. And you've got too many players who you feel like, alongside the Allegri issue, there's players that you think the club would rather not have on their wage bill. And who we know the club is trying to shift over the summer, um, right until the end of the transfer window, they weren't able to. And it's a it's a little bit of a mess. They're not a like if you think of the the, the very successful Juve teams, you think of their definition and not just under Conte, but Allegri previously too. Like they were mechanical and they had little bits of flair, but you knew who's you knew what everybody was supposed to be doing within it. Mm. Now it's there were times when I was watching over the weekend, I just. I didn't know what they were trying to do. I, I couldn't see the kind of the attacking method. And Milan were just were far superior, um, yeah. which is okay. you know, kind of okay. worrying. Well, let's keep an eye on uh, Juve to see what's going to happen over the next few weeks. Staying with you, Seb, uh, Dortmund, Munich, it was a 
Borussia Dortmund 2 to Bayern Munich. Uh, Bayern didn't win again, Sam. But I mean, I suppose that's the first thing to say. They're still third in the in the in the table. Yeah. Um, so Union Berlin won on Sunday, one 0 um, So they remain top. But so the legacy of this game is the controversy. So um, not even really arguably. I, I think definitely G Bellingham should have got a second yellow card. He made one reducing tackle on uh, Jamal Musiala. Got the ball, but he, he got everything else, if you know what I mean. And it's sensitive. Sort of mm. Missyala skittling up in the air. Um, and then um, he was guilty of a, a sort of a, a high foot on Alfonso Davis, which probably should have been a second yellow. Um, Oliver Khan complained about this on Twitter. Yeah, so there was a moment at half, um, like when uh, Leon Gretzka was shown talking to the referee, clearly about what had happened and why there wasn't a second yellow card. And the referee, it's caught on German TV, making that gesture. He's saying, well, he's ducked into the foot. And I, I, I probably agree. I, th- I think he probably did, but I, they, you do see yellow cards for that. But Bellingham, um, I love watching Bellingham. And one of the reasons is, is kind of his application in games like this. Dortmund's game plan was to create chaos, was to be aggressive, was to bring the intensity to try and nullify you know, some of Bayern's obvious strengths. And truth be told, it didn't really work because they went two goals down and then Bayern were extremely careless. Like there's um, one of the stories of Dortmund's season has been Anthony Modest struggles hasn't done very well since coming in as a kind of um he came in as a kind of reaction to the Sebastian Hilaire situation mm. and he's he's found it really really difficult and he's lost his place to uh, Yusuf Mikoku but Modest creates the first goal he misses an opportunity to equalize in about 86 minutes I think and you think that's it's terrible because it's right in front of the yellow wall and you can feel the whole stadium kind of sag with disappointment mm. uh, but then in in 95th minute uh, as long ball, which um, John will back me up on this because he's a big Nico Schlotterbeck fan. Um, but how many times when when, it, when a team's chasing a goal and they've got their centre-halves in the opposition box, how many times do you see the ball break to a centre-half and then do something stupid with it, like just hack at it or um, spoon it off for a throw-in? Schlotterbeck controls the ball beautifully, hooks it round to the back post, and there's Modest to score right in front of the um, right in front of the ultras and the the, the, the air wall goes mental. It's absolutely wonderful. Obviously, Oliver Kahn twisting himself into a knot in the stand was the headline image. Mm. But there was a really lovely moment where, at the end of games, German teams, when they're at home, they go to their ultras to kind of acknowledge the support afterwards. And obviously, Dortmund did that. And um, Anthony Modest and quite a few other players had their kids with them. So Modest had his two children. And obviously, he's gone from, from zero to hero. And it's a really nice little redemption arc. And also, it's important because I think the... The Bundesliga gets pelted for um, Bayern's dominance. And, um, you know, whenever Bayern win or Dortmund stumble, it's never short of kind of facetious comments um, mm. directed towards it. It preserves also the amazing Union story. And uh, well, it's just uh, ridiculous, absolutely. but fantastic. Union played nine games, won six. They're currently top of the table on 20 points. Uh, Freiburg, another well-loved team by one member of this uh, cast over there, John. Uh, a second with 18 points. And then we have uh, Munich and Dortmund tied third and fourth uh, with 16 points each. Um, it, I mean, it's quite close behind that as well. It's actually turning out to be a very interesting Bundesliga season. So we'll come back and discuss that more. Can I can I have a, a special uh, Freiburg mention for um, Kofi Kare, who scored his third goal in three games? Like he, he's a... Um, Ghanaian international um, who has now played in and scored in all of the top four flights of German football is a, a remarkable story. He, he was um, he was at St. Pauli uh, until last year, signed for Freiburg in the summer. And uh, he's a super player with really cool goal celebration. Does kind of backflips and stuff, which is nice. It's but- worth saying that uh, John has been aggressively nodding throughout you. <laughs> Speaking, Ben, he's quite right, very, quite very right. much agreeing with what you're saying. Yeah. No, he's a super player, and he he was at um, he went to the uh, Africa Cup of Nations with Ghana last time uh, last year, 
um, or the beginning of this year, sorry. And um, yeah, he's uh, he's going to go to the World Cup too. So um, yeah, someone to look out for because he's an excellent player. Can I just say, Freiburg signed Ritsu Doan, Matthias Ginter, Michael Gregoric, and Daniel Kofi-Kaire for 13 million euros mm. this summer. We're all together. All th- it's all amazing business. Wow. Yeah. Also, good, Nico Schlotter Beckenbauer. What a man. What there was, a man. There are outfield players who, like further up the field, who wouldn't be able to do what he did for the that The thing goal. is, though, when you think about that as an investment, I know we've got our Freddo's barometer, <laughs> but also you could have 13 Derbyshire longhouses for, for, <laughs> for that much. And I, you know, Think how far away you could get your parents exactly, with 13 longhouses. 26 sets of parents that don't want to move in with you. <laughs> still like there, was a, um, there was actually a really lovely moment. So Christian Strike couldn't be at this game because I think he gave a, a positive corona test. Christian Stryker, Freiburg manager, long-term Freiburg manager, cult hero, um, everybody's mm. favourite coach in Germany. And so he had to watch the game on television, but he, um, there was a moment in his press conference before the game where he's like, I just don't know how to. Like, he didn't understand the channel system because I'm am I watching it on Sky, I'm watching it on ZDF, am I watching it on DAZN? So it's kind of like a befuddled Christian Strike, not really being able to keep pace with the, um, the modern broadcasting environment, but uh, still, yeah. Still getting it's like a your dad from. watching football, isn't it? Yeah. And being like, oh, can you stick the game on for me? Because I don't know how to do it. Yeah. yeah. Still managing to get a point in Berlin. Okay. Well, that is the Bundesliga. We'll come back and talk about the Bundesliga uh, much more, hopefully, um, this season. Uh, that's enough uh, for now of the football that happened over the weekend. A few other things happened, though, that we want to talk about. Uh, the first one is the, is the sort of odd situation between Casillas and Puyol, which occurred on Twitter. This is what happened. On Twitter... Ika Casillas uh, tweeted, I hope you respect me. I'm gay. Hashtag happy Sunday. Uh, Casillas then claimed his account was hacked later, but not before Carlos Puyol responded to him. Um, I can't remember exactly what Puyol said, but it was uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, well, well, it's time to tell our secrets to, to the world. Our story. Our story, yeah. our story to the world. Yeah, there we go. Now, Alex Kajelski, who's the editor of The Athletic, wrote a, an article about this over the weekend. Uh, and uh, there was just something he said uh, towards the end uh, that I wanted to, to point out here. He said that the Casillas incident hurt a lot of people and will have done nothing to make LGBT plus people feel like they belong in football. It's worth pointing out that Casillas uh, was apologetic, said his account had been hacked, and of course he was, uh, you know, apologises to any harm done to LGBT plus people as a result of the tweet. But I think, JJ, it just sort of, like, it's just another example of indication, at least, that uh, sometimes within, like, football culture, they still just don't quite get it. And also it feels like a step back after lots of positive stories so far in the last year. Yeah, I think it's... Um, there's a lot of footballers, whether they're pro elite level like these guys here or even in Sunday League, who will take part in things which are supportive of um, gay footballers or anything like this, these, any sort of social cause mm. uh, without actually understanding what it is they're doing. It looks good for them to sometimes uh, be part of that bandwagon so that's things like understanding the importance of what it is they're saying the sad thing about it um is like the, then the responses to those initial tweets are kind of like filled with the confusion in the fir- in the first instance because yeah. lots of people are, be- are being supportive of what they think is a is a is a it's a statement being you know an accurate statement being made by Ike Casillas. there's also like an awful lot of homophobia which then occurs in in the replies to that tweet uh, so anybody who is reading that is going to suddenly just be exposed to all of this like vile horrible shit and I don't know, I feel, I feel like it's just sort of, it's an example of maybe an area where 
just increased and more and repeated education around like what is and isn't helpful. I don't speak to the intentions of, of, of Puyol or Ike Casillas. I don't, don't know either of them or what either of them would have intended to give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that they're not trying to upset anybody when they when they do something and maybe have unintentionally done that. Presumably that you could make an argument there to say that an like increased education around that would just prevent people from from doing something like this, which as Alex says, like does But then they're grown adults. So they're they're forty years old. It's not like a teenager making a mistake that they can learn from and get better. I mean everyone can learn at whatever age. You can learn and move on from that. But these Mm. are people who should realise what they represent and how well seen they are in the world. Sure. And the damage that can cause by trying to make jokes about that on that platform. It's just, it's, you should just know not to do that. Yeah. Because it'd be very upsetting to people who then suddenly don't feel like they belong or aren't welcome because it's still a joke. Sure. Well, worth highlighting again, like the positive stories that we've heard over the last year. Josh Carvalho in Australia coming out, Jake Daniels as well, plus the two or three referees in, in Scotland. Hopefully these sorts of incidents don't put a halt on that happening or people feeling that they're able to, to come out. But we wanted to talk about it anyway because um, it just feels like an unnecessary misstep and an unnecessary uh, hurt caused there. Another sad story that happened over the weekend is that Brighton's Enoch Moipu has uh, retired, John, as a result of um, medical advice. This is very sad, isn't it? Because he's a fantastic player. Yeah, sad sad story for a player just about making it at the top stage of, of football and, and definitely one for the future. But yeah, it turns out that he's had medical tests that show that he has a heart defect that make it very dangerous for him to play. And so he has retired with immediate effect, but he will be, I think, involved in the setup at Brighton mm. um, going forward. But He said he intends to have a role, which is quite cool, isn't it, Seb? Because we were thinking before about like other players that have, I mean, for different reasons, been injured out of the game fairly early and then had one way of looking at it is if, if you know, Maipu wanted to, like, a decade jump on learning how to be a really, really good coach. Like, there's an opportunity in this, I suppose, as well, isn't there? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I can't imagine how emotionally difficult that's got to be to to have to step away at such a young young age. Like, having just found yourself, like, in the game, just reached the highest level of it and being part of a... I mean, it's got to be great fun to be a Brighton player at the moment um, and to kind of, yes, Potter, but also deserve is just, you know, that, that, that's that got to be an enjoyable um, coaching style for a player to experience. And then to deal with I imagine it's much like a loss like mm. you know having to deal with a kind of um, situation which requires mourning or you know a response to sort of a, um, a bereavement in the family it's got to be awfully difficult so yeah so like first of all obviously he needs um, care and, and love and um, you know to feel like his self-worth isn't determined by his football his football career because um, yeah. that's probably stage one I'd imagine very difficult for us to relate but you'd have thought so and then yeah like a, a player What's really interesting about him is the way his teammates and coaches have spoken about him. He's tremendously smart. He sees the game quicker than a lot of players. And that bears out in kind of his midfield performance. He seems to process the game um, super quickly. So you'd imagine someone like that um, clearly has the intellectual capacity to, to impart his wisdom, his experience, but also to kind of learn new things. And if you can start learning a new coaching discipline, uh, you know, a new profession at 24, then yeah, for a footballer, you are going to get a head start. So, and probably a bit early in the day for silver linings. Um, that's a bit of a trite thing to say, I, I guess. But uh, yeah, hopefully there is an upside because it's a horrible thing. It was shocking. Mm, yeah. Well, anyway, all of our best to Enoch yeah. Waipu. I've certainly enjoyed watching him over, over the last year or two. So hopefully uh, everything works out. I turned out to be a really good coach. Maybe he will. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? 
if I'd we talked that. about it and then in uh, 20 years time he is he is you know we're all gone our separate ways I'm working in a fish and chip shop in Blackpool <laughs> and uh, you're working at the Scottish Football Museum and John is a, also is working a, in Perth also working in the Oxford uh... <laughs> and, and we say oh look Mwepu is the Brazil manager yeah it could <laughs> be cool that would be that, or maybe he can lead Zambia to the World Cup sure sure anyway it was odd that we started joking straight away, but sincerely, all the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a real It's just sad, isn't it? Yeah. All right. I think that's everything. Is that everything, Steve Hankles? Uh, I think so, yes. Yeah, fine. Well, uh, thank you, uh, JJ Bull the Bullet. Thank you, Joe Devine. Thank you, Jonathan McKenzie. You are most welcome. Oh, danke schön, Herr Stafford Bloor. Vielen Dank, Herr Devine. Yes, vielen Dank. And uh, thank you to uh, Don. Producer Don over there. We get a little hand from Don. One little hand. Is your little hand anywhere? No, there's no hands anywhere. And of course, to uh, producer Steve Hankles also. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. That's right. We'll be back next week with with more. And in fact, in two weeks' time, we're going to get a special treat. A bit more Michael Bailey coming back on. Come back on the 25th. Is that you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. You got the language. Uh-huh. Just making noises now. <laughs> What did you actually say? I said he's coming back on the 25th of October. Who? Michael Bailey. Oh, right. He'll okay. be, uh, I'm on holiday. So, you know, he'll be, might go to Rome. <laughs> it's good. It's good, isn't it? Anyway, that's the end now. Bye. Bye.